Coming up on Chopper's Politics. The armed forces, they face more danger, more hardship, more separation in a single day than Mr Lynch and his cronies face in an entire year. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, the Associate Editor for Politics at The Telegraph, and this is Chopper's Politics Podcast. Now, trains are grinding to a halt across the country. Nurses, ambulance drivers, postal workers, border guards, they're all striking this month. It feels like Britain is entering some sort of deep freeze with nothing working. The winter of discontent, or should that be the winter of disconnect, is truly upon us. But what is the government doing about it? Answer, so far, is not much. Yet this industrial action should allow ministers to put themselves on the side of people who just want to get to work, pick up the children from school or see their families at Christmas. The strivers against the strikers. But instead, ministers appear to be relying on the old favourite, calling on the army to sort it out. One person less than happy is James Sunderland MP, Tory MP for Bracknell and a former colonel in the Royal Logistics Corps. James Sunderland, MP for Bracknell, welcome to Chopper's Politics Podcast. Great to have you Good here. Good morning, Chris. Here we are on the Red Lion Pub in a festive, festooned uh, basement of the pub here. Great to have you on. You've got in, you got in on your train from Bracknell. It's been difficult and be even harder next week with these strikes, won't it? Yep, impossible. You cannot imagine how cynical this is, the fact that these unions are going on strike at a time when families want to be together at Christmas. These families, these loved ones, have earned the right to some downtime. Um, We've had the pandemic, and uh, I think it's a deliberate attempt to upset families over Christmas. Well, of course, that would be denied by the RMT. They're saying they need to get better pay deals for their members. Of course, Chris, we want more pay, don't we? We all want more pay. The front page of of Thursday Telegraph talks about concern in the military of defence that the government relies too much on the army to bail them out of problems. Do you share that? Yes, I do. I spent almost 30 years working for the armed forces. I was a colonel before becoming a politician. The organisation that I work for doesn't go on strike, never fails to turn they up. They can't go on strike, can it? They the can't army? go on strike. They never complain. They're there always to protect the very people that pay their wages. So for me, it's somewhat ironic and very cynical that once again, the armed forces are being called upon to bail out these people. And you're, a, you're a, a former colonel in the Royal Logistics Corps. So your colleagues there in the Royal Logistics Corps are the ones who will be doing the work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my former colleagues, um, for whom I've got the greatest respect, all the armed forces do a fantastic job. But these guys are going to be called upon to do the work over Christmas. They're, they're specialists, they're drivers, they're medics, logistics, engineering, skilled personnel we've got in the armed forces, and they're all skilled, will be called upon to um, backfill those who choose not to come into work. Have they been in touch with you to say, why is this happening? Why can't the government sort it out themselves? Why rely on the army? Why ruin my Christmas? Well, I mean, not so much. I mean, I have a network. I have colleagues who clearly uh, are still serving. I have a good relationship with the MOD. I talk frequently to the ministers that are there. And I think there's frustration both in government, in the MOD, of course, in the armed forces. As a politician now, James, and of course you became a politician in 2019, do you think that the government is using the army as a cop-out for not making tough decisions? I mean, like anti-strike laws. Well, I think all three services are the victims of their own success. They're pretty good. They are well organised, they're well supported, they're led by very good people. And if you go back through my career, we've had the foot and mouth crisis, we've had the millennium bug, we've had flooding, ambulance cover, we've had fire cover, had the pandemic. 
so many examples in my lifetime of how the armed forces have been brought in to support other government departments. I know there's a frustration within the MOD, the fact that they are so readily called upon. Of course, their job is to defend the country and to defend our allies. It's not to uh, support other government departments. But it shows very clearly for me the utility of force in all of its forms. And actually, the fact we're even considering further cuts to the army, I find quite outrageous. We need course, a bigger army. This is the case we need for a, a bigger, bigger army. army. We need a bigger army. We need bigger armed forces, not just because of what they're being called upon to do internationally, but also because of what they're being asked to do domestically. And we must not forget that. Um, who do we call upon at a time of crisis to support the country? It's the armed forces. Mm. And of course, all of our other fantastic mm. key workers. It's a kind of a, it's an easy choice for ministers, isn't it? Because the army always says yes, the army's ready and will do what it's asked to do. Do you wish there'd be, be, be better measures put forward by this government and maybe on anti-strike laws, get them going quickly? It's in the manifesto. I mean, I I do agree. The armed forces they face more danger, more hardship, more separation in a single day than Mr. Lynch and his cronies face in an entire year. But of course, we call upon them because they're good. I think we do need a bit more support for the armed forces in the Commons. I think we need to be firm with our call for 3% GDP. And I get the fact that we've got this fiscal constraint at the moment. And I'm pretty clear also that uh, we need to value the full utility of what our armed forces do much more. And on pay, there's problems there because you do have privates on £22,000 a year and train drivers and others on much more. Absolutely. Train drivers earn an average of £60,000 a year plus over time. They earn twice what most soldiers earn. So why not put the RMT onto the same paying conditions as the armed forces? I think the payoff is very generous. Mr Lynch himself earns... This is Mick Lynch, the leader. This is Mick Lynch, the leader, earns uh, in, in my research £130,000 a year. He earns more than most generals. So let's get back to work. Well, what's gone wrong in politics this year, do you think, particularly in the Tory party? Well, it's a very tough question for me to answer because I am a loyal Conservative MP, a member of the government, of course. I'm, I work for the Home Office. I think this is a classic case of events, dear boy, events. What you've got are macro conditions internationally and domestically which are driving policy. We've had the pandemic. We've got uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. We've got inflationary pressure being caused by that. It's not the government's fault. And actually, I'm pretty clear that the government is doing the very best job it can to compensate for those international things that are happening. So I, I'm clear in my mind that, uh, that right now the Conservative Party are doing the best job they can. We've got a brand new Prime Minister who has started brilliantly. He's calm, he's cautious, he's competent. He's instilling real confidence across the party. And uh, I, I'm, I'm very happy that uh, the Conservatives now should have a good run to the next election. He's also invisible, isn't he? He's barely about. No, he's not visible at all. This is a guy who is reading his briefs. This is a guy who's meeting people. This is a guy who's planning. He's doing one tweet a day. This, this, he's not well, on Twitter much. Well, was that a good thing, James? Let's not judge by social media. This is a Prime Minister who is working round the clock to make the right decisions for the country. And um, having met Rishi on numerous occasions recently, I can tell you that he's decent, he's kind, he's very clever. Is he a politician, though? He's great, a great manager. He's brilliant, a politician. Brilliant, uh, you know, uh, COO. I mean, but is he, has he got the, 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 in his fingertips? He's a politician. He's a clever guy who means business. Do not underestimate Rishi Sunak. This is somebody who, uh, who has taken this very seriously. He's got the right people around him. He's getting the right advice. The team at number 10 is very, very competent. And this is a guy that you're going to see now go up in the polls significantly, will challenge Keir Starmer, will beat him. 
You say that, don't you? But of course, he has actually done a, 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 a performed an about turn about uh, housing targets. Um, they've dropped an education bill. Uh, onshore wind is back. These are measures he's been asked to do or forced to do by his own MPs. How is he a strong leader? Well, on the housing targets, I don't think you could call that a U-turn. He's a new prime minister. He's looked at this with a fresh pair of eyes and he's agreed with the vast majority of conservative backbenchers that top-down housing targets are not the right thing to do. And I'm going to commend the fantastic work of Theresa Villiers and Bob Seeley and others. This, for me, locally, is brilliant. My constituents love it. For them not to have to have more housing forced upon them, for them to value the quality of life they've got, for them to preserve the open spaces they have and the leisure facilities they've got is brilliant. It's okay, okay for you guys in, in Bracknell, isn't it? But of course, further north, more, more houses and more homes needed. I mean, elsewhere, homes, homes are needed, aren't they? Of course. And the Conservatives are the party of home ownership and house building. Our record is phenomenal in comparison to that of Labour's. Under Labour, we had more houses being built in the 1920s than we did under Labour government. So I'm quite clear that the Conservatives are delivering. We've had lots of houses locally. Local plan in Bracknell has been delivered every year for the last 10 years. So, so we are building houses, but it has to be in the right place. You use the that this term competent to describe Sunak. Uh, do you mean therefore that Johnson, Boris Johnson and Liz Truss were not competent? Well I think they're all very different people, different prime ministers, <laughs> different styles. Um, I was very fond of Boris, very fond of Liz Truss and I'm very fond of, of Rishi Sunak. I'm not going to make comparisons between the three of them because I think clearly Liz's tenure was quite short-lived but if you were to bring Boris into the picture, he got Brexit done, he was a fantastic prime minister and fell on his sword uh, after three years and I, in my view rightly so. Sunak is the new man. He's got lots of promise. He's doing a great job for now. But you, but you look at these individuals, these three PMs, the three Tory leaders, leaders you, you've seen, goodness, since the end of since September. Do you see a lack of leadership in them, or are they are they leaders? I mean, do you, as a leader yourself, as someone who's commanded men in, and women in difficult situations? I mean, what I won't do is compare myself to any of these prime ministers. I mean, <laughs> well, you I, could be PM. I, 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 I'm absolutely not worthy. But what I would say to you is that um, I have a different view of leadership than perhaps others might in Westminster. Leadership is very important. Countries love leaders. Boris was a good leader in his field, and um, the leadership that Rishi Sunak is currently showing is also very, very effective. My inbox is quiet. hasn't been quiet for three years. People seem calm. They seem... Happy right now with the Conservative government. There's work to be done. We know that, but it's being delivered. Our manifesto's been delivered, and Rishi Sunak is absolutely the man to do that. James Sunderland, MP for Bracknell, with concerns about next week's strike action by members of the RMT and the rest. Thanks for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. James Sunderland there with some noises off reminding you that we are actually in a Red Lion pub which is receiving beer for a busy Christmas period. I hope it didn't spoil your enjoyment too much. Now the government's inaction is an opportunity for an old sparring partner on this podcast, Nigel Farage, according to think tank More In Common. And that should worry Labour as much as the Tory party. Luke Trill, UK Director of Morning Common, welcome to Chopper's Politics. Great to have you here in the Red Lion Pub. Well, thank you for having me. You probably hear quite a lot when you were spad for Nicky Morgan. Uh, I was, yeah, lots of uh, late nights <laughs> here, late um, nights. unwinding or fielding calls from you. <laughs> so, but now you're at Morning Common, now what is Morning Common? Uh, we're a think tank uh, that works across five countries to try and tackle polarisation and bring people together. And 
the main way that we do that is try, try and bridge some of the gap between what elites, so decision makers, policy makers, even the media are thinking, and what ordinary people are thinking about the big issues facing. That's the what country. I try and do as well, actually. Yeah. Oddly, <laughs> yeah, exactly. and you, you've been, you did some good research, which I put out in um, my my newsletter, available in all good inboxes um, on Monday. Can you summarise that briefly on on the threat from what you might call a, a Farage-led, a Nigel Farage-led party. Yeah, so we tested. Basically, how popular a party led by Nigel Farage that particularly focused on immigration, tackling illegal immigration, might be. We asked people to rate on a sort of 1 to 10 scale. How likely would you to be to vote for this party? And across the board, about 10% of the public said 10 out of 10. But when we drilled down into a group that we've identified called Loyal Nationals, they are basically the group who powered the Conservative victory in the Red Wall in 2019. That number doubled to 20% of that group said that they would vote for a Farage's party. When we looked at people who were 7 or 10 yeah. more likely to vote for that party, it was 40%. So there was a big pool of voters, and they're particularly those voters who were disillusioned with the Labour Party at the last election, moved to the Tories, don't feel the Tories have lived up to their promises and now looking for something new and that Farage party could be it. And is it a Farage party or just a party with the Farage type values? Because Reform UK exists. Farage is the lifetime president, but it's run by a guy called Richard Tice. Yeah, so there is definitely an added bonus from having Farage there because he's well known. You know, he doesn't connect with everyone. In fact, you know, he's a very polarizing he's quite for a lot of people. Uh, politician. You know, there are more, more people that don't like him uh, than do. But of course, he doesn't have to get many votes to start causing problems uh, electorally. So he definitely adds something. When you test kind of reform policies, they still poll reasonably well with that chunk of people. But without that charismatic figurehead, it doesn't quite push them over the top. And those policies are, you know, obviously more measures on immigration, cutting taxes for public sector workers, veterans as police chiefs, new open cast mines in the northeast of England. These are, you know, quite, uh, well, they're red meat policies, aren't they? They're, they are red meat policies. So some of the things that we tested were leaving the European Court of Human Rights, which obviously uh, Nick Timothy talked about yeah, earlier this week May advisor, report, Telegraph columnist. Uh, there were things like scrapping diversity training in public services and reallocating the money to the front line, clamping down on small votes, you know, actually delivering mm. on the Rwanda plan. Again, sort of across the board, they're getting sort of 10 to 20 percent of support. Difficulty for the Tories, though, is the other wing of their coalition, the sort of Cameronite Tories, don't like that stuff and so you know they've got a really tricky balancing act trying to appease you know what you might call your red wall voters on the one hand and your more kind of blue wally voters who don't like this culture it's stuff a coalition on the other. it's exactly. a coalition but all yeah. politics is yeah. a coalition yeah. in all parties completely and the magic of boris actually was keeping that coalition mm. together um actually it's a huge it runs right across the ideological spectrum from the right to basically the center by not really saying anything. I mean, remember when I mean, Johnson would just like witter away, wouldn't he, and not really say anything. And that, that was how he held together the coalition he built. Completely. And we asked voters, you know, the, the Tory 2019 voters, why did you vote for the party? And they gave three top reasons. One, get Brexit done. Two, to stop Jeremy Corbyn. Three, to support Boris Johnson. All three of those reasons have now gone. So that puts the Conservatives in a very difficult position. That glue which mm. united that coalition isn't there anymore. We're reporting um, in the Telegraph on Thursday that a couple of long-serving Tory councillors, Tory members are jumping to Reform UK. Is that the beginning of a flood, do you think, or just an isolated example of discontent? 
Well, I think the proof will be uh, in the pudding on that, but you could be the start of that bandwagon effect. As you say, up until now, reform has struggled to gain traction, and I think part of that is it's, it's not very well known. Actually, even the name reform isn't quite like UKIP or Brexit Party. It doesn't resonate well, with Well, I wonder whether they might go back to the Brexit Party. I, I've said before, I mean, I think that is, a, that is a now an idea, that's a values call, Brexit, more than just what it was. Completely, and if you look at how reform performed in the Chester by-election, 2.7%, that doesn't strike you. But, you know, Chester isn't a seat you'd expect them to do amazingly well in, but you'd expect them to do a bit better than that. But actually, That's worse than got, polling, isn't it? Exactly, and if you've got people starting to go over that gives it a sense of momentum it gives an opportunity to define themselves because i think the reason they're struggling at the moment is to say as much that they're unknown as what they're offering when you say a name change might help because a brexiteer is is now almost a character you know you know what that person believes in in the same way that really the word conservative doesn't mean much at all on its own nor does labor really but it defines some values Exactly. And particularly if you're a new party, you know, like with Labour and Conservative, you know, we know them, they're well established. Whereas actually there's a new party. I mean, what does reform mean? I mean, you remember the last election, we had all of these pro-EU parties like Renew and stuff. And I imagine lots of voters will be getting them confused. Reclaim and, and the rest. Reclaim yeah. and yeah, no, exactly. They need to emphasise that distinctive yeah. identity. Is it mainly a Tory problem, a Farage party, or is it also an issue for Keir Starmer in Labour? So I think it's primarily a Tory problem. And again, let's remember, you know, this party wouldn't have to win any seats to take votes from the Tories and cause them problems in places like the Red Wall. They are, as I say, the largest pool of support are those voters who backed the Conservatives for the first time in a generation at the last election. But let's also remember, lots of those voters were once Labour voters. And actually, if Labour is going to rebuild its big Blair coalition that it had, you know, from 1997 to 2005 it really needs to get those voters back so the big immediate problem is for the Tories but longer term if you're Labour and you're thinking actually these should be our voters you know they're working class voters in the north of England they need to win big there they've got to win 120 seats to get the majority of one in the House of Commons haven't they Uh, absolutely and if you looked at the polling uh, Ipsos did some polling from Scotland yesterday which suggested the SNP were on course to do very well indeed um, at the next election so if they're not going to gain many seats back in Scotland they've really got a run the board in England. So if you were back in government now, Luke Trill, what would you be advising Rishi Sunak to do? So I think the first thing that he's got to do is he's got to show those working class voters that he's on their side. What we get in our focus groups time and time again is a sense that Okay, you know, people on the bottom, uh, on the lowest incomes, they're being looked after. You know, benefits are rising by inflation when earnings are going up by far less than that. Those at the top are kind of going to be okay. But actually, it's working people who are being squeezed. The squeeze middle. The squeeze squeeze middle. The the, the term coined by Ed Miliband a decade ago. Well, But but actually, it is just as resonant uh, today, if not more so. And lots of people we spoke to after their autumn statement sort of said, you know, we, we get you've got to sort things out. But what? Why is it always us? Why is it working people who go and work hard day in, day out, who are always the ones that have to essentially pick up the tab for others' mistakes? So there's got to be an offer to them. And then the second thing is, you know, whatever side of the migration debate you're on, the government has to get a grip on small boats. And it can't just be more rhetoric about small boats, because what that is doing is increasing its salience and then nothing happens. There's got to actually be tackling it. Now, the British public, as we've seen with Ukraine, hugely compassionate when it comes to supporting refugees. 
what they don't like is illegal, chaotic channel crossings. And I think, you know, there are a range of solutions that you could be looking at, say Nick Timothy outlined. Uh, some of them, I don't agree with all of them, but it was a good paper in terms of putting some ideas. But there's others as well. Why are we not tackling uh, the gang masters? Why are we not massively investing in tackling the people driving the people smuggling um, on both and sides of the had, channel? And Labour's answer isn't very strong there at all. I mean, Labour have a similar problem with this. They don't mean, I mean, Keir Starmer told me on the podcast two weeks ago that he would talk more to the uh, law enforcement groups on the continent, go upstream and deal with the gangs that way. But I'm not sure that's the answer either. No, I don't think we've heard anything concrete from Labour either. And I think part of that is, you know, they are just a spoon by getting the label of being soft on immigration. You know, they remember the legacy of the Corbyn stuff and actually some of the Miliband stuff. And so they're being deliberately ambiguous. And of course, to some degree, they can afford to do that because they're not in government. But again, one of the things we get time and time again in our focus groups about Kier is, despite his popularity is clearly going up, is what does he stand for? Mm. He, he's good at opposing, but not much else, yeah, not yeah. much other than that. Back to Farage as we wind up, Luke Trill. He's always told me he won't stand again to be an MP. You know, he fe- tried and failed eight or nine times, whatever the number is, and he's quite bruised by that. For him to come back into politics, he needs to see a way back in. That could be through proportional representation if there is a Lib Dem Labour coalition after the next election. Um, do you see PR as a threat or even a possibility? I think maybe even a good thing. Well, well, um, you know, some people often cite proportional representation as the cure to, you know, polarisation. But, you know, we work in France and Germany and actually they have proper far right parties representing their parliament. We don't have that here. We don't have that. And actually what First Past the Post does is it forces our parties to be big tents rather than to splinter off. So and one of the things which I say to, you know, lots of my colleagues I worked with when I was in government, some of who are now MPs, others who are still advisors, who say, actually, we could do with a spell in opposition position as a conservative party say be careful what you wish for because you must shout them what are you talking about because once proportional representation comes in actually it's, it's unlikely you'll ever get a majority conservative government again so that is the real risk that the rules of the game change forevermore and that does open the door for a Farageite party. He gets 20 MPs gets, every, every single time. Every time. And also people think, well, my vote's not going to be wasted. So I can vote for them now. So actually the support ends up being I mean, look at the AFD in Germany. Look at Le Pen's party who benefits from the two-round system mm. uh, in France. I mean, look across continental Europe. We don't have that. And I think it would be a real shame to lose those big tent parties, those coalitions that we started off talking about. But just finally, Luke Trill, reform is going to be a player the next two years. Reform or the Brexit Party, whatever it's called, will be an issue. I think as long as the party gives a disciplined message that focuses on things like immigration, bread and butter issues of working class people, you know, investing in the NHS, I think the danger for them is they focus a bit more on the libertarian economics, which actually just doesn't have that resonance with this pool of voters. They have to be quite disciplined and focused on populist policies. If they do that, and if the Tories fail to A, give people hope on cost of living and tackle migration, I think they could be a real threat, if not in terms of getting seats to Rishi Sunak's election prospects. Well, Luke Trill, the UK Director of More in Common. Thank you for joining us this week on Chopper's Politics Podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Luke Trill there with a warning on why proportional representation may not be all it's cracked up to be by its supporters. I'd love to hear your thoughts on what Luke had to say. Please do share your thoughts on Twitter. We're at Chopper's Podcast or email me chopperspolitics at telegraph.co.uk. Now, do stay with us, listeners. Coming up, I'll be talking about whether the Tories are just a bunch of NIMBYs when it comes to housing, with Theresa Villiers MP, a former Cabinet Minister, right after this. 
If you're finding this podcast interesting, you may also like our new daily podcast, Ukraine, the latest. Every weekday, The Telegraph's leading journalists bring you the latest news and the most informed analysis of President Putin's invasion of Ukraine. From our newsroom in London and from the ground. The Russian machine has been ground to a halt now for well over a week, and that is just staggering. NATO has to act now. It has to do more than it's currently doing. Otherwise, in this Ukrainian MP's words, you'll have to evacuate the whole continent. One video that we found to be incorrect was bomb squads seen in the Donbass region. The metadata of this clip shows that it was created in 2019, not today. Search Ukraine, the latest, in the same place you're listening to this, and click follow so you don't miss an update. Now, last week, former levelling up Secretary Simon Clark MP told us this about what might happen if the government axed mandatory housing targets. If we abolish all targets, which is what's being discussed by some of my colleagues, we will, I'm afraid, end up with a NIMBY's charter. And a week later, the government has done just that, egged on by 60 or so rebel Conservative MPs. And with me now is a leader of those rebels, Theresa Villiers MP. Theresa, welcome to Chopper's Politics. It's good to be back on the podcast. Yeah, amongst all the Christmas decorations. Theresa Villiers, are you a NIMBY? I am not. I just believe that we need to build the right homes in the right places. And I also believe that they need to be supported by appropriate infrastructure and that local communities need to have a say in what is built in their neighbourhood. So what happened this week was the government was, was forced into changing its position on, on mandatory housing targets by Tory MPs led by you and Bob Seeley, the MP for the Isle of Wight, and you're the MP for Chiffing Barnet. Do you see why some have characterised that as an attack on the young who can't get on the, on the housing ladder? That is, that is not what we were doing at all. And indeed, this government has a strong record on housing delivery. But prior to the pandemic, the number of homes being built each year was you know, pretty much at a 30-year high. Like Two thirty thousand a year or so. Yeah, yeah well ahead of uh, what we inherited from Labour. We are serious about delivering new homes... But the problem with the top-down mandatory targets is an excessive focus on the crowded south of England. And these targets have been making it increasingly difficult for councils to take decisions on what's built in in their areas because even development which is very much out of character or environmentally damaging sometimes has to be approved in order to meet the target. So I and my colleagues felt that we needed to relieve that pressure. And as well as proposing an amendment to scrap the targets, we were looking at other ways to increase um, home building and and unblock some of the things that are preventing it from happening. For example, developers being given permission to build homes and then not building them, sitting on them in the expectation mm. that the, the value of their land and the houses they will eventually build goes up. So-called land banking, because yes. developers must, must um, preserve their margins to stay in business, mustn't they? Which is, means that they have to build homes at a rate, which means the value of those homes stays where it should be to preserve their own company's future. Well, we've seen developers making huge profits and some of the salaries paid to their executives is massive and one of the things I very much welcome about Michael Gove's announcement this week is 
is the advice to the Competition and Markets Authority that they should be investigating the the competition in the market. But yeah, you know, more, more small house builders is what you want to see. Yeah, yeah, but the, you know, the reality is that these top-down targets have been creating intolerable pressure on the crowded south of England when actually there are better ways to deliver new homes, for example, by tackling land banking and ensuring developers actually build when they're given permission and making sure that housing is a big part of the levelling up regeneration projects in our regional cities. Actually, you can deliver significant volumes as part of regeneration of former industrial land in the north, in the Midlands, where the, these new homes are, are needed and welcomed. Will new homes built fall now or increase if we're at 250,000 a year as the run rate? Because last week, Simon Clark, the former levelling up secretary, briefly under Liz Truss, said that axing the target would cut new homes being built by 100,000. Well, I, I don't believe that that sort of fall is, is remotely going to happen. And, you know, I, I, Will have, it go up, then? I have the highest regard for Simon Clark, but only six weeks ago he was saying that we must abolish top-down targets because that was Liz Truss's policy. So <laughs> I think that, okay. that slightly undermines the weight to be given to his statement. But look at one of the innovations of the coalition government, and that was no. neighbourhood planning. So plans for, for local areas where residents are involved, and that demonstrates that if you give people power and agency, then they step up. Those plans have shown themselves to be quite Do they, though? Do they really step up? Because they don't want new building next to their homes or their villages. They they just get annoyed about it. In neighbourhood plans, very often, the numbers set are ambitious. We need to find a way to bring communities with us with house And you've lost that stick to force councils to build more homes by removing the mandatory target. We that the according to the compromise that Michael Gove announced this week, the targets are a starting point. So they're advisory and uh, local authorities where they have genuine constraints on their ability to mm. deliver at the the figure in the centrally generated target. Yes will be able to make the case for a lower number. And the planning inspectorate, which up to now has always just tended to, to say to councils, it's the top-down target, that's what you have to do, there's no compromise. The agreement this week demonstrates that... Uh, it's an adult relationship rather than a kind of... Yeah, it, it re, it's a rebalancing of, of power. So councils have more of a say as opposed to the planning inspectorate. But there are still you know, rigorous uh, requirements in place to encourage the building of new homes. Will you bet me a pint of London pride the house building will go up after these changes? Look, I I can't predict (laughs) exactly (laughs) what the housing numbers are going to be. We all know, for example, this is not just the planning system and targets. It does kind of depend on the economy as well. And when we're heading into a recession, I think we can all expect that house building numbers will inevitably fall in, in the next 12 months, not least because housing delivery has been so high over the past few years. Um, and, and you'll be blamed for that, Theresa Villiers. You and Bob Silly and the rest will be blamed for, for removing the mandatory target to bring numbers down. Well, That's what politics. We, what we've got now is, I think, uh, a sensible compromise. It does give local communities more of a say, but there is still a significant role for objectively assessed housing need. And... You know, I believe, as, as I've said, if, if local communities are given more 
more say and more power. They don't say no to everything. No. Um, they are concerned about what's built in their neighbourhood and people are accepting of new homes. It's just that they need to be supported by appropriate infrastructure. The and the new infrastructure levy, which is part of the government's proposals, will, for example, give greater priority potentially to brownfield development, development on former industrial land. That is a way to deliver new homes in a way which is more environmentally sustainable and provokes less opposition locally. Yeah. You've been, you've been a long-serving Tory MP in government. You're, you're in, in David Cameron's cabinet, Theresa May's cabinet. You've seen um, three prime ministers since, since September, three Tory leaders. Has your party given up on governing, do you think? Not at all. I think Rishi is doing an excellent job. Any prime minister taking over in these circumstances faces huge difficulties because of the global economic turmoil caused by the aftermath of COVID and the worst energy price shock for 50 years. And Rishi has restored a sense of calm and confidence and competence to the way government is running. I mean, I, I have a high regard for all of his predecessors, but, you know, it, it's it's been a a year of turmoil and I think he and Jeremy Hunt working together have taken some really difficult decisions on the economy, but we're seeing that already reflecting, for example, in the gilt markets calming down again, the OBR predicting that the, the recession will be less severe as a result of the autumn statement, that jobs will be saved as a result of the autumn statement. So, yes, there are difficult decisions being made, but we are seeing real leadership from Rishi. And I believe that he's the man who's going to ensure that conservative fortunes recover and that we set the foundations for economic recovery as well. And tax cuts? Absolutely. Next year? I, I, I mean, can we... Because he's, he's, Jeremy Hunt's put them up in, in, in April, isn't he, as, as unveiled in, in the autumn statement, but it, surely they must come down before the election. I want to see taxes come down. Uh, it's not possible to do them at the moment because of the state of the public finances and the economic problems that we've just been talking about. But absolutely, I want us to get to mm. the point where taxes can come down, and I, I know that that is part of the long-term strategy. Exactly when that happens will depend on how quickly the economy and the public finances recover. You were one of six um, cabinet ministers who resigned from David Cameron's cabinet over Brexit to fight oh. for the Leave campaign. Well, if you remember, no, we were all allowed to stay in. We, you uh, stayed if, in? If, oh, you came out and said, yes, yes, you didn't resign He essentially gave us a sort of free vote. So, um, yes. yes. Well, I, I, was, I was one of the, the cabinet ministers who made it very clear to, to David Cameron in advance. That you would have resigned if you weren't allowed to campaign. I really needed to vote to leave I think the European Union. That's what I was thinking of. Um, how's Brexit going at the moment in your eyes? I think we need to do more to make use of our power to control our own laws. Now, we've made some progress already in terms of, for example, dismantling the common agricultural policy and removing a number of those regulations. We also are passing very significant changes to financial services. The Legislation on that has uh, just recently passed through Parliament to really boost our financial centre. And of course, we saw that the country benefited from being able to run our own vaccination programme 
and our own regulatory system for medicines because that meant we could get jabs out quicker than Europe and we could come out of lockdown quicker than Europe. So there have been some important advances in relation to Brexit, not least the end of free, free movement. But we do need to do more. <laughs> That's almost like half a million increase in net migration is not the end of freedom of movement for a lot of people. I mean, it has ended technically, but it doesn't look like it. Yes. So we do we do need to still deal with those those migration issues. But what I want to see is extensive regulatory reform. So we look at all the retained EU law that we have and we work out whether it's needed for our domestic circumstances and whether we can regulate to deliver the same outcomes, but in a way which is less costly, more targeted, more risk-focused and more suited to our domestic circumstances. If we do that, that can be a tremendous economic boost. And I and other colleagues such as Ian Duncan smith and George Freeman put together a blueprint for that in something called the Task Force of Innovation, Growth and Regulatory Reform. The TIGA Report. The TIGA Report, yes. And part of that, for example, was changing the rules on an EU regulation called Solvency 2, which again is something the government's taking forward, and that could release billions for investment in important That's pension businesses. funds investing in, in roads and rail, or roads and bridges. And, uh, and other businesses, and UK startups. Yeah. yeah, so it, uh, there, there are you know, tremendous economic advantages to regulatory reform. I was an M- MEP for six years. Of course. It, it radicalised me uh, to see... The EU legislative process in practice made me realise it's it's fraught with with haggling yeah, interest groups with you know, but so, so we is can all, do better. So is all policy making, but you bring it subsidiarity being the old term used to describe bringing power back nearest to the people subject to it. Yeah, I mean, I'm going back to sort of my one of my former roles was at Defra, and again we've seen quite a radical change. For years, the EU has been extremely hostile to genetic modification and gene editing techniques. And under this government, we've now made lawful gene editing. And I think that potentially can deliver very significant economic and environmental advantages. And GM food sold in the shops, will that come soon? Well, genetic modification is, is still restricted. Gene editing is the practice whereby genes are edited in a way which could have been delivered via selective breeding and traditional methods, but um, instead is being delivered scientifically. And I think that there's there's quite a lot of support for that, and it could yeah. revolutionise agriculture and food, and therefore I think this is an important benefit of leaving the European Union, that we can make our own decisions It, it is important, though, that you do ink in, in permanent ink, these changes so that the Brexit, which many voted for, can't be reversed by a future Labour government? The more we diverge from European Union laws, certainly the more difficult it is to return to the single market or the EU. But I mean, also there there would be seeking to rejoin as a new member. We'd also have to sign up to the euro. There would be none of the sort of concessions and opt-outs that the UK had before it left. So there are all sorts of reasons why rejoining would be a very bad idea. Well, Theresa Villiers, MP for Chipping Barnet, thank you for joining us this week on Chubbers Politics Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Theresa Villiers there. 
Well, that's all for this week, listeners. In the run-up to Christmas, I'll be bringing you a couple of particularly festive episodes featuring a former cabinet minister singing carols and another very old friend of the podcast with some favourite Christmas readings. I hope you do enjoy them. Thank you again to my guests this week, Theresa Villiers MP, James Sunderland MP and Luke Trill. Thank you to my producers, Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and to my colleague, Meghna Nanu, and our number one fan this week and chief milk collector, Sean Tidd. But most importantly of all, thank you to you for listening. I really do appreciate it. For more Westminster Insights, do check out my daily Choppers Politics newsletter. The link for that is in the show notes for this episode. And why not peek at my weekly Peterborough Diary column out every Friday evening at 7pm online and in Saturday's Daily Telegraph. And do remember, if you can, do buy a copy of the Daily Telegraph. You won't regret it. Until next time, though, from a busy Red Lion pub in the heart of Westminster, cheerio! Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.